1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that was accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be adulterers as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as a warning for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would captivate our hearts by the truth of the speaking and living God. And may my words and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who enjoyed history or is enjoying history in school? Hands up. Okay. Why did you enjoy history in school? Good outings. Excellent. Yep. What was your favorite one, Graham? Just outside Leicester to a castle. Remains of a castle. Excellent. Excellent. Good field trips. Anybody else? What made history good? Good stories. Ah, oh, we all love good stories, don't we? Other things. What was good about history for you? Learning about the past. Anything else? Understanding why things happened. Yeah. I think one of the things that made history come alive to me was I had an inspiring history teacher. Did anybody else have that experience? You can, you can learn about history and it's just dead boring and dry. Or you can have a teacher like Mr. Green for me in secondary school who was so gripped by history. This is like well before the era of YouTube. He would write songs about different lessons of history and sing and play them with his guitar. It was just absolutely brilliant. And despite the fact that we're all teenagers and we're all too cool for school and all that stuff, Actually, all of us thought Mr. Green was just brilliant because there's a way of teaching history that just grabs you because the person who's sharing it is passionate about it 
And they want you to know about it because it's exciting and it's thrilling. And there's lots of ways in which the history in the Bible is similar to that. All of us have been in either Sunday school, preaching, Sunday um, Bible classes or lectures, whatever it may have been. And the person explaining the history may well have been absolutely brilliant in their field, but they lacked a little bit of passion. Whereas if you get somebody who is just gripped by their subject, they can kind of infuse you and draw you into that passion of history. Now, having said all of that, that's not the only reason that God has recorded so much history for us in the Bible. Because you might be sitting there thinking, well, <laughs> I don't care how interesting or passionate the history teacher is, history just isn't for me. In fact, I'm really looking forward to not choosing history as a subject, or I'm glad that I was able to drop it for something else. That might be where you are. And that's fine, because what I want you to see this evening is that Bible history isn't just for Bible lovers. Bible history is more for Christians than just looking into the past. What I want you to see is that God planned his story into the future so that Israel's history in the past would change our story in the present. So I want you to see from this section in 1 Corinthians 10, that needs to change the way that we think about Bible history. It's not just dusty old records from a land far, far away. And if you're into that kind of thing, that's great. But if you're not, you can take it or leave it. Bible history has a meaning for us today. It's a record of how God dealt with his people in the past, knowing in advance of that, not just looking back with hindsight, but knowing in advance that as he dealt with them then in that way, that would change our lives today. It's not just dusty records. And we began to see a bit of that last week in the last section in chapter 9. And we saw that this big lesson from chapter 10 is a warning. It's a warning of do not be like the Israelites. And we're going to unpack that warning in these first 13 verses this evening. I want to do that in four sections and look at verses 1 to 5 to begin with to see that spiritual blessings don't guarantee faithfulness. Spiritual blessings don't guarantee faithfulness. Just because you've received a whole host of blessings... And there are all sorts of amazing things in your life, as there were for the Israelites, that doesn't guarantee that you'll be faithful in your spiritual life. That's the first lens. There are a couple of lenses that I want to look at tonight in these first few verses. Here's the first one. I want you to look. There's all sorts of detail in the blessings. We'll get to that in a minute. I just want you to see these repeated references to who receives the blessings. Okay? Look in verse 1. Our ancestors were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food. And then our translation misses off a repetition in verse 4, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. So, simple question, who received all the blessings? Everyone, all the Israelites, right? Of all the Israelites, who was faithful to the end? Look in verse 5. 
Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. That is the very definition of an understatement. You think about all the millions of people that came out of Egypt in the Exodus and how many people made it to the promised land. Two. Joshua and Caleb. The rest were scattered in the wilderness. We'll get to why in verses 6 to 10 in just a minute, but capture this first lens in your mind, first of all, for these first five verses. Who receives all the blessing? All of them. All, 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 all. Who was faithful to the end and received the greatest blessing that they were promised? Nearly none of them. Second lens we need to see in verses 1 to 4 is how Paul describes these Old Testament blessings. You see, it's not just, so so Paul's a Jew, and this is his history, but it's not, in one sense, a very Jewish summary of Jewish history. Yes, it's their history, but look at the language that Paul uses to describe all the events that took place. He is wrapping up their story in New Covenant language. In one sense, he's retelling their story. He's not changing it, but he's describing it in such a way that the Corinthians that he was writing to would hear their story and understand they're not actually that different to us. He starts that theme in verse 1. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. Remember, Paul is a Jewish Jew. And the vast majority of people in this church are non-Jewish. But what does Paul begin by saying? The history of God's people of old is your history, even if you're not Jewish. Because God has one people through all time that he is bringing to himself by his saving grace. So don't look back on these people and think, completely different world. It's more similar than you think. And and you get that when you look at their story. So big picture, verses 1 to 5, they were unbelievably blessed. Let's skip through some of the detail. Verse 1, they knew God's blessing from the very beginning of their history as a nation. That's what we're reminded of as they were guided and guarded by this pillar of fire and clouds. And we've seen as we've gone through Exodus, I tell you, uh, Matthew and I try really hard to make sure that when we plan series, we're thinking about moving between the Old and the New Testament and looking at different genres. We never planned to be as careful as to have us working through Exodus at the same time as 1 Corinthians. That's just God's kindness. But it's fresh in our minds such that when we get to this kind of passage, We're reminded, as we've seen recently in Exodus, that if you're Jewish, you would see the beginning of your identity as a nation as when God brought you out of the Exodus. That's why there's this reference here to the protection and the guiding of God. Right from the very beginning of their being Israel, God was there. Verse 2. Verse 2 is a really unusual description that we don't find anywhere else in the Bible. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, Paul is not saying that the Old Testament believers were baptized into Moses and therefore saved by being united to him. There's only one baptism that brings a union that results in salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ. I think what he's getting at is one of the 
one of the things that happens or is symbolized when you're baptized is you become part of a people who are led by Christ, whom you're led by. And in a similar way, the old covenant people, through this enormous symbolism of a baptism where actually they didn't get wet, they were becoming part of a people that were led by Moses. I think that's what's being described here. And not only that, but verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. What did we see in Exodus in the chapters over the last few months? That after Mara, God brought his people to the 12 springs of fresh water at Elam. He provided the manna and the quail in the desert. He provided the water from the rock at Horeb. All of those stories are describing literal, physical provision. But there's also a spiritual element. And I think Paul is describing that in two ways here. On the one hand, it's a reminder that these physical provisions were miraculously provided from heaven. There's no way the people could provide these things for themselves. They were direct gifts from the spiritual realm. But I think he's describing another spiritual aspect here as well because he's deliberately using Lord's Supper language. Not in a way that means, therefore, we read everything about the Lord's Supper theology back into the manna and the quail and the water. That's not his point. His point is that the God who is spiritually nourishing his people in Corinth is the same God who has always spiritually nourished his people. Showing them their complete dependence upon him. And as they began to get a glimpse of that in those different ways throughout the Old Covenant, there are the Corinthians seeing the fulfillment of all of that through what the Lord Jesus did on the cross. The reference to uh, the spiritual rock, <laughs> the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ, that is absolutely fascinating. And you could spend, well, you could write a number of PhDs on, on what is going on here. What's really interesting is what we know and what the Jews extrapolated from what we know. Okay, So we know in our Bible that in uh, Exodus 17 at Horeb, God provided water from a rock at the beginning of the wilderness. At the very end of the wilderness wanderings, God does it again. So when you get home, you can have a look at Numbers 20. There's another rock. This time it's at Kadesh. God provides water from a rock again, beginning and end. Presumably on the basis of that historical event, began a Jewish... Mm, Tradition, that said, this rock got up and followed the Israelites all through the desert, all the way to the very end. And that's how the nation were sustained. That's how they received their water, through the desert. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that. That's a Jewish tradition. And whether Paul was aware of that tradition as he was writing this or not, we don't know. But his bigger point is not that there was a rock that was moving through the desert. It's that every single step through the desert, God was with his people. Now you might say, well, they're his people, he's God, that's not a very big deal. Why were they in the desert for 40 years? Because they were disobedient. And yet, even in their disobedience, 
God himself was with his people. He was the one who was providing for them. And as with every good gift that proceeds from the Father, it was given through the Son. And you just look at those four or five verses. They're an unbelievable description of the abundance of God's blessing. And the way that Paul has written all of it helps us see how similar their story is to the Corinthians and to us. It's not ancient, boring history that has absolutely nothing to do with us unless you happen to have a really passionate Old Testament scholar. This is identifiable. This is similar to what we know. And because of that connection, we can learn something from the Israelites. So what's the lesson? Verse 5. Nevertheless... God was not pleased with most of them. That's the warning. We began to see it last week. For all their spiritual blessings that all the Israelites received, receiving those blessings didn't guarantee faithfulness. And then Paul goes on to unpack this warning, verses 6 to 11, when he reminds us, don't be like the Israelites. Verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And this is where the Bible's history stops being like an inspiring history lesson at school. Because the best that a history history teacher can do at school is to be passionately excited about their subject and make you think, oh, that's really interesting. But interesting isn't the word that Paul uses here. We've got the word examples in our English. It's translating a Greek word, typos. Now, can anybody think of an ology word that we might have from typos? Typology. Typology is the Bible's explanations, God's explanation, that there are events and people and circumstances in the past that God works through to help us understand something that's fulfilled in the future. Lots of words. Let's have some examples. The Passover lamb. When we were going through that in Exodus, it was a remarkable story of God's provision to save his people in Egypt. What's it pointing us towards? Jesus Christ, the great and final Passover lamb. What is the whole of Exodus describing for us. Matthew helped us see so helpfully this morning. It's a reminder not only, in fact, Andy's lead as well, not only of what they were genuinely rescued from, but it was preparing the way for us to understand what we're rescued from. Then you get to the priests, thinking about them this morning. For all of the wonderful provision of the priests in the Old Testament, they died, they were imperfect, they had to keep offering their sacrifices over and over again. They're preparing the way for something better. Typology is a small shadow of a greater fulfillment. It is, as one author described, prefiguring the future in prior history. Now, this is how it changes how we understand history in the Bible. When you get to the Old Testament, the idea is not that you dig around enough to try and get excited about what's going on to a distant history, but it's there in the Bible, so I suppose we should probably learn about it. Typology isn't hindsight. Typology is seeing that the God who is above and beyond space and time so planned 
before the beginning of time to work through the Israelites that in the way that he responded to them, we now change our lives in the light of it. Typology, if I can use that description that I used at the beginning, typology is God's way of planning his story into the future so that Israel's history in the past would change our story in the present. And that's why Paul shifts all of his pronouns in verse 6. Look at the first few verses. It's all, it's all old history. It's all they or most of them. But from verse 6, it's now us. Don't you be idolaters. We should not commit sexual immorality and so on. What's his point? Verse 6 We mustn't set our hearts on evil things as they did. That's the command. Why? Because otherwise, we, like them, will be judged. Because they experienced spiritual blessings as we have. They turned from God and from all of the blessings because they wanted to pursue evil things in their hearts and God judged them. And God did so, not just so it's an old history lesson, but planned to do so, so that when we see what we're now facing, we know that this is how God will respond to us if we don't heed their warning. And what's really striking about verses 7 to 10 are what Paul chooses to write about. Because you think about all the history of the Old Testament. There's 39 books in our Old Testament. Paul could have picked anything. But he chooses these specific examples. And he does so to show this Corinthian church that all the things that they're wrestling with are what God's people have wrestled with before. So he's writing to this Corinthian church that is failing with idolatry. That's eating food sacrificed to idols that's approving sexual immorality, that's grumbling and testing God's patience. All of that is their story. But Paul says, that's also the Jew's story. So where do we begin? We begin with Moses going up Mount Sinai. And as, Moses, as Matthew has been explaining something of that scene for us in Exodus 19, you've got this unbelievable picture of majesty and And terror, in the right sense of the word. There is this mountain upon which God is going to descend and command his people so that they would know how to live. It's such a fearful moment that if you step foot on that mountain, you will die. Moses climbs up and the people turn around and make a false god and start worshipping it and engaging in revelry. Uh, That is the most staggering description of idolatry that you'll find in the Bible. And Paul includes it because that's exactly the same sin struggle that the Corinthians were wrestling with. And for some of us, maybe it's the same temptation we're wrestling with too. Sunday's glorious. It's the mountaintop experience. It's the great encouragement in your spiritual life. It's an opportunity to sing and serve and do all the things that we get to do on a Sunday. But by Sunday night, Monday, 
your heart is drawn to do things that if anybody else knew, you would be too ashamed to admit. It was their story. It is the Corinthian story. It may be your story. Verse 8 is, is a reminder of what happened with the Midianites in Numbers 25. We've got this horrendous description of their, their sexual immorality. Um, but it's always embedded with, with more than that. If you go back into Numbers 25 when you get home, we read that the women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods and the people ate and bowed in worship to their gods. You have it again, this pair, this awful pair, forbidden intimacy and idol worship. And together they draw people away from God and towards sinful things that perhaps otherwise they wouldn't pursue. And you can see why Paul's pointing the Corinthians back to this. They're doing exactly the same thing, justifying awful immorality and uniting themselves to idol worship. Get to verse uh, nine, you're reminded of what goes on in Numbers 21. The people tested God and complained, and God sent all of these poisonous snakes to kill so many. And then you get into verse 10, and we're reminded that the people didn't ever stop complaining. They whinged about everything. They complained about the lack of food, the lack of water, the difficulty on the journey, about Aaron's leadership, about God's judgment, about the delay in bringing them to the promised land. Their speciality was grumbling. And in response to their lack of trust in God, many, verse 10, were killed by the destroying angel, which I take to be a description of divine judgment rather than the identification of one specific angel. So what is uniting all of those history lessons together? It is that people who receive great spiritual blessing can set their hearts on evil things, turn their backs on God, and be judged for their sin. That's the warning that Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples, it's the same typos word again, and written down as warnings for us. Please, Paul pleads, please don't set your hearts on evil. We heard this morning, didn't we, that lovely positive Reminder from Matthew of the goodness of what we are set apart to be and called to be as God's people. Able to draw near to him and to be like him and want to repent at all. And you've got all of these wonderful positive descriptions of what it is to be a Christian. But you also have these very clear warnings. Don't pursue sexual sin. It will break everything. Don't grumble. Don't look at all the goodness and provision that God has given you and whinge and complain wanting something else. Don't test God by continually pushing back on the things that he has given. If you turn from God's blessings and pursue those things, the history of the Israelites in the past is a warning for us in the present of what God will do in the future. But there's more than just sinful activity going on in Corinth as well. There's a deep-seated heart problem. And that's what Paul gets into in verse 12 when he challenges them by saying, don't justify sin by being presumptuous. Don't justify sin by being presumptuous. Paul warns them, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. There are at least some people in Corinth who thought they had it all sorted. They were as safe 
as houses. They had their own idea of some secret knowledge that they had that meant they were spiritually untouchable. There was enough in their bank, as it were, to know that they could just justify whatever they wanted to do and they'd be fine because they'd been baptized, they were taking the Lord's Supper, all was good. And they could presume on that to justify sinning. That's not the same as saying these people had great spiritual blessings and they struggled in their sin. Paul's saying something else here. He's saying there's a presumption in your heart that because you've had all of these things, you think you're standing firm, but beware that you will fall. If I can try to illustrate it this way, perhaps it's helpful to think that becoming a Christian doesn't mean you're given an immunity card to your old self. Uh, perhaps you know that ambassadors are given diplomatic immunity when they're overseas, um, which basically means that they can't be uh, charged or sentenced with crimes in their host country. They, there's all sorts of privileges that come with it. So they can park their cars wherever they like. They don't get parking tickets or they get the ticket, but they're not going to pay. Um, they can basically avoid any kind of liability. And you get the diplomatic importance of why they have that system. But if you think about it, it could be horribly abused. When you become a Christian, your old self isn't given an immunity card. God doesn't just say, right, James, I'm going to leave you unchanged, but I'm going to give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. God changes your heart. He makes you new. He gives your heart new desires and a new longing to live for him. And all of that is what is encouraged and enabled by the Holy Spirit who changes us so that we no longer want to pursue those temptations. And when they happen, there's a weight of guilt and shame that falls upon us for we haven't done what our Father would want. But it's not the same as a presumption. Oh, I can do this because I'm all fine. But as I say, that doesn't mean that you're not going to face trials and temptations as a Christian. And what's so lovely at the end of this kind of hard warning section is that Paul finishes with a word of comfort. In verse 13, there is this lovely word of encouragement. Yes, we need all the warnings. They're given to us, not because they're ancient history that maybe you can learn something from. They're given to us because God planned before time to work through the history of the Israelites so that by the time I'm speaking to you on the 28th of May, 2023, the Spirit of God can look in your heart and see what you and I need to change in light of what happened to the Israelites. All of that is real and true. But for every Christian whose heart has been changed, who will heed, listen, apply this warning, Paul wants to comfort us. Verse 13. No, I can't quote it because it will be the wrong version. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out 
so that you can endure it. Fourthly and finally, your trials and temptations aren't greater than God's faithfulness to you. Your trials and temptations are not greater than God's faithfulness to you. This is an absolutely brilliant verse to memorize. But the danger of memorizing it, sometimes, as with other verses, is that you lose sight of the context. And then you've only got verse 13 in your head. No temptation has seized you except what is coming to man. And you can miss the breadth of what Paul's referring to. So if you memorize verse 13, over time, it can kind of narrow in its scope in your mind. That's just the verse I quote when I'm struggling with temptation. Or it might even become even narrower. That's just the verse I quote when I'm struggling with sexual temptation. If you go back to what is being described here, hopefully you've got a footnote in verse 13 at the words tempted. And it will say something like, the Greek for temptation and tempted can also mean testing and tested. Meaning Paul isn't only describing a narrow struggle of temptation. He's referring back to everything that the Israelites were struggling with all the way through the Old Testament. He's, restri- he's, he's thinking of all of the grumbling. He's thinking of all of that testing. Or perhaps if we made it 21st century, he's not only describing the kind of sexual immorality temptation thing, he's also describing the trial of being unemployed or underemployed. It's describing that season of, of testing, of having that new health diagnosis that leaves you uncertain for the future and wondering what's going to happen next. He's describing all of the gamut of life that, as with the Israelites, might pull us away from trusting in a faithful God. And it's into all of that that Paul comforts us. And the first thing he comforts us with, you need to be really careful to hear, not as a belittling, not as a lack of understanding, but as a genuine word of comfort. If if you've just had the bad health news, or, or you've just had the appointment with your boss and you know your job is ending, or you're struggling significantly with a battle with temptation, one of the most paralyzing things the devil can convince you of is you are completely alone in this struggle. Nobody else knows, so don't talk to anybody else. And God can't help you because you are so far gone. It's because of that that the first thing Paul reminds us of is no temptation has seized you except what is common to mankind. He doesn't mean to belittle it. He doesn't mean to underestimate the weight that it puts upon your heart. He means to say, you're not in a situation beyond hope. Others have been where you have been and will be there in the future, but more importantly, it's not beyond God. So much so that he goes on to say, it has only come through to you because God has allowed it. Which is not to say God is the author of sin. For he's not. But he is so sovereignly in control of all of life that what we experience is only by his permission. 
and when we experience it, not on our own and not beyond the scope of his sovereignty, it will not be more than we can bear. Now, please don't misunderstand what Paul means there. This is not, this is not the Christian version of the macho test. Oh, you've had scale eight testing. Well, I managed scale 14. I'm the better Christian. It's not even in Paul's mind. There is no understanding in Paul's brain about things that he was able to do within himself. We were reminded last week of what he's going to say in chapter 15. It's by the grace of God that I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So if you're in the middle of one of those seasons of testing or trial, God is shielding you. It's not come to you unless he has allowed it. He is sustaining you. And he will be with you. And and then there's this wonderful, all-important thing that you need to see because in his faithfulness, we are told that when you are tempted or tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I memorized that verse when I was about 14 and I honestly couldn't have told you what it meant. What is Paul saying? Is Paul saying that you're never going to experience any kind of temptation that he won't allow you to escape from? It's the first half. Or is he saying that there's going to be some temptation that you're going to experience that you won't escape from, but he's going to enable you to endure? It's a really important question because in whatever area of life you are hurting in right now, you need to know the answer to that question. What is it that you are to expect? What is it that you're praying for? What is it that you can be encouraged in when you see that being answered? See why it matters? Here's how we answer the question. I want you to see the two other references in the, in the New Testament to this word endure. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy 3. Um, I'm afraid I haven't got a church Bible in front of me. Can somebody shout out if you've got one? 2 Timothy 3, what page number is that? It's a sword drill without knowing if anybody's actually got the sword to hand. Uh, page 1196, if you're using one of these red Bibles. 2 Timothy 3, and we're looking at verses 10 and 11. You, however, writing to Timothy, explaining to him what Paul's experienced, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I same word, endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Now, if you go home and you read through Acts, on each of those three occasions, the people in those cities wanted to kill Paul. It wasn't like life and ministry were a bit hard. They wanted to kill him. And what did it mean for him to endure in that circumstance Yet the Lord rescued me from them. He was brought out from them so that he could live and serve God for another day. Okay? That's occasion number one. Second one is in 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you're in this Bible, that's page 1218. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm actually going to read from the ESV because it translates the Greek more literally. It's easier to spot the same word. Peter's writing to slaves. 
Slaves who he wants to challenge are to serve hard and harsh masters just as faithfully as they serve gentle and kind masters. Okay? And in verse 19 of 1 Peter 2, he writes, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, fixing your eyes on Jesus. I didn't know Paul, uh, Paul Tim was going to read Psalm 121. Lifting your eyes, fixing your eyes, mindful of God, one eh, 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 endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. See what Peter's saying? I can't guarantee that things are going to change. What does it mean to endure for these servants under these harsh and hard taskmasters? It means to be so mindful of God that by his grace you can be sustained in it. Now you bring all of that back to 1 Corinthians 10. What does it mean, verse 13, to know that our faithful God has promised when you and I are tempted or tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Sometimes, God will enable you to flee. And if you're stuck in a rut, in the way that you're engaging with somebody or something online, The way out may be a whole lot simpler than you may think. And you just need to leave. Other times, God will give you grace to endure and you are called to stay for as long as he wills. And if that is God's calling for you, you need to hear the promise in this verse that God is going to sustain you and help you escape the temptation to sin. He's not only going to leave you there. He's not just going to leave you there like the Israelites had all of those experiences. He, as you trust in him, is going to enable you to resist that temptation to turn away from God and all of his blessings and look for comfort somewhere else. That is how God will enable you to endure if his intention is for you to stay. It's to save you from that temptation where you would turn the season into an occasion of rebelling against him. There's a lot of us here tonight. There are going to be so many different life circumstances that you're experiencing right now. Please, would you see the two ways that Paul speaks into our lives that I need to see as much as you? There's a history that we need to learn from with a really serious warning. But there is a comfort and a promise to all who will listen that God will watch over us through it all. We're going to sing now before we come to the supper and pick up those themes as we do so. Though Satan may buffet, 
though trials may come, let this calm assurance control that Christ knows my need and my helplessness here and has shed his own blood for my soul. As we come around the table now, we are not only going to be thanking the Lord Jesus Christ for all that he has done, but for all that he is doing such that we may sing, it is well, it is well with my soul.